Hello and welcome to Venturing in Climate, a podcast which shines a light on the entrepreneurs and investors tackling climate change, hosted by me, Henry Hamilton. Today we have Patrick Sheehan, founder and managing partner of ETF Partners. ETF, or the Environmental Technologies Fund, is a climate-focused venture capital firm headquartered in London. Founded in 2006, ETF is focused on Series A, Series B, climate tech investments, mainly in Europe. Hello, Patrick. Thank you for joining us. I'd love to kick things off by asking about what you did before ETF and how you ended up founding your own climate VC firm. Sure. Well, I'd, I'd been in venture capital a long time beforehand. I actually started life doing a PhD in research in electronics, but I joined a firm called 3i, an embarrassingly long time ago after that, in 1980. With the intention of being there a couple of years, I was there 21 years because they, they were very kind and let me do what I wanted, which was start a dedicated US-style venture business in the early 90s. And that grew all around Europe, actually. It was very successful, not because of me, but because of timing. To the point in the late 90s, I realized that it couldn't keep growing like that and needed to adapt. So I argued that we should go to the States. Now, I don't know what it's like for you, but I find when you start to argue things, then you end up having to do them. And so, which was what I wanted to do. So I went off to Silicon Valley in the dot-com era and started up a venture business for 3i through that period, which was kind of wonderful, extravagant experience. But we had kids and they were growing up, and so we were always coming back. So we came back here in, in the fall of 2003. I speak American when I think that way around. But, but by then, I also thought that climate change was real. I was returning to Europe thinking about the future of our children. And I, I sort of thought, what am I doing? How do I explain to them I think climate change is real and didn't do anything? And then it slowly dawned on me that venture capital should be, maybe could be a great tool to help address the innovations that are going to be required to address climate change. And so, so to cut a long story short, that led to the creation of ETF Partners, the Environmental Technologies Fund. We finally got a, a fund closed in 2006 when it had become a bit of a thing and clean tech was all around us. So, But we got going with the first fund of £110 million back then, and we've been doing the same thing ever since. Well, that's quite something to go through from going from Silicon Valley and normal tech to straight into you know, climate tech. So can you talk me through what it was like back then raising that first fund? And actually, that's a very big number for back then. So that was obviously very, very successful. There can't have been many firms around then. And what, what sort of typical hurdles and challenges did you face setting up a dedicated environmental fund then? The idea then was to do what I think people always need to do, whether you're starting a venture capital fund or any business. It was not to do what most people do, which is to say, we're raising a fund and we're going to be quite good and we hope to be top quartile. Because that's not compelling. It was to say, there's a huge problem in the world and it needs to be addressed. And frankly, Mr. Insurance Company, Mr. EIF, you ought to be doing this and you should find the best possible team. Oh, there isn't one, was our pitch. <laughs> so we'll create one for you. <laughs> and, and it was kind of as simple as that at a high level. Now, clearly there was more to it, but but I think it's important to represent a kind of differentiated position where you've got a, a distinctive claim. And that's that's what we did then, and that's what we continue to try to do. And Patrick, how has the focus changed? So when you first set up that first fund, has the, the focus of what investments you're looking for evolved over time? Obviously, the you know, it was very focused on renewables at that point, and it's changed. So, so what was the focus then and, and then now? I think the whole world has changed around us. But, but back then, frankly, we did a lot of pre-revenue companies. We did much more hardware, materials, a lot of, a lot of more difficult things than we probably try to do today. And, and of course, if you do a lot of pre-revenue companies and you run into a financial crisis, which is what happened dramatically then, 
that's a very difficult place to be. So we did change our focus a little bit. We still focus absolutely on positive environmental impact, but we moved to focus on companies that already had revenue and where we could already touch real commercial growth, which is where we focus today. And that shift was really necessary for us to to survive and thrive when most clean tech funds back in that day frankly didn't and failed. And so I, I think the path between success and failure for any startup, and we were a startup, is very is a very narrow and rocky path, but fortunately we didn't navigate it. And and we do see this by the way in the companies we back, they often have a point of kind of existential crisis which we have to help guide them through. And why do you think ETF managed to, you know, navigate that very difficult sort of waters between sort of 2006 and that first, the bursting of the clean tech 1.0 versus lots of other funds that didn't, didn't make it? Well, two or three reasons. Um, this might sound a bit arrogant, but we, we did have a very good long-term track record beforehand. So people could look at that. And I'd like to think we were very open and honest with people and still are, and people trusted that. So we, we didn't just say, it's been a difficult environment. Let's do the same. We said, we've looked at every single thing and looked at every single way we can improve. I'm a big fan of continuous improvement, by the way. So we continue to try to improve. We'll, we'll never be good, even if we get better, as we get better. And and so I think it was just engaging honestly with people with credibility, which was key, as it is in any difficult time. And it's, it's just sort of better business, really. In the end, investors are like any other people, very human, and they they kind of want to deal with people they like and trust, just as we do. Absolutely. Have you, since the first sort of iteration of the first fund, have you seen a change in sort of a couple of things? That one is the sort of LP base and what kind of potential investors invest in funds, but also is there anything really, really different about what you look for in the teams that are building climate technologies between then and now? No, no, I don't think there's anything different in the teams than we look for what I think we hopefully displayed, which is resilience, teamwork, and a real passion, but, but also you know, credibility. So I, I, it's so hard to really spot a good team, but it's, it's a lifetime of experience to try, and we keep working at that. But I, I don't think the requirements of success have really changed very much. And it's one of the things that makes the job interesting, actually working with the people, where you know, we're not just judging them, we're helping them and supporting them and trying to go the extra mile to make sure they succeed. Sorry, I've forgotten the entire rest of your question when talking about people. <laughs> no, no, that's all right. It's, it was just about the LP base for Fund 1 oh, versus yeah. sort of now. Uh, I, it's been evolving. Our funds have got a bit bigger, but I think we see today much more interest in sustainability in climate change, massively more than back then. In 2005, six, I remember trying to explain to people that having a, focus on positive impact was compatible with making a profit. And, and I used to argue that actually the need creates the opportunity. I, I don't have to say that anymore, right? People get it. We, we have fundraising still hard work, but we have, have had some cold calls from, from some sizable institutions. I think because there's a sense of urgency that around now that there wasn't then. And that is, is terrific. It's also very necessary, right? So, so I, I think my sense mm. of of the need for change and innovation has only gone up. Right? I don't feel any sense of complacency. Yeah. And I, I do think fundraising is, although, although there's a massively more interest around sustainability in general, fundraising is, is going to go through a tough period. Um, and so yeah, there's mm. absolutely no room for complacency for us, for our companies or for anyone else. 
Yeah. Obviously, as a, as a the founder of a VC firm and having done it for quite a long time now and, and raised, you know, several funds, it'd be great to know a bit more about how you found, you know, fundraising for fund one versus fundraising for fund three. And if you can just talk to us about what, what that was like for you and, and for the firm over time. I think fundraising is always hard, you know, and that the hardest thing is always, always feels like the next fund because we push ourselves mm. to have bigger and better funds anyway. Right? So we don't, we don't give ourselves an easier ride because it's a new, and, and I think the bar just keeps going up, which is, which is good. But so it's a marathon fundraising and, and it requires resilience. And so I think we've learned just to, a bit like supporting startups through difficult times, you know, you have great days and then it's important, I think, not to be too euphoric because there'll be bad days. It's important not to be depressed. <laughs> the secret is just to keep walking forwards. And, and so, so the morals around fundraising for venture, very similar to the morals around success in startups. I think it's just keep calm and carry on, right? And one of the, mm. one of the things I hope I do is supply the calm, both situations. That's good. There's certainly going to be highs and lows. And I think leveling those out is, is always good. I guess the, in terms of, you know, ETF now, you mentioned that you now look for revenue generating firms, but are you able to sort of share, you know, an investment from say one of the fun ones and, and talk about that and then, then an investment more recently? Yeah, no, I'm happy to talk about them. I'll, I'll get carried away talking about them, but which I pick, I'll, I'll uh, maybe I'll, I'll mention one or two uh, from some of our prior firms. One that comes to mind is a company called Zelo. I mentioned it because it's a UK company and it, it is a technology business which organises busing for big corporations like Amazon who want to get people into work and also want to get them out of cars. And and actually, it's, it's been growing like a like a rocket. Is that a thing? Growing like a rocket? It's been taking off like a rocket. Yeah, that way. Because the stress in the environment is good for it. You know, people have needed to get out of cars. They've They've wanted more secure ways of getting to work. Employers have, have actually wanted to get employees to work more easily. And so that business we've seen expanding and expanding. And, and, and by the way, this, if you add up, because we try to measure impact for each company, and we, we there look at, well, well, how many car journeys have been avoided so far? Probably half a million, right, just to put it in context. And that company is still doubling wow. again this year. So it's a lovely business. The bedrock of the business is is actually high tech, but but to the customer, it, it's a very seamless, simple service. Was that acquired recently? No, no there was a, a lot of talk about it being acquired, but it didn't actually happen. So the company remains independent okay. and remains doubling in size. Brilliant. I, I mentioned one from one of our earlier funds, just to give you a sense of difference. So I mentioned a Finnish company called Wirepass, and this is a very technology-rich rich communications company. If you want to sound a bit geeky, it, it's got wireless mesh networking software, which allows things to connect together. People have been talking about wireless mesh networking for 25 years, but it's never really worked at scale. And we invested in this company mm. a number of years ago because we saw it working at scale. It was actually being deployed to make smart meters work effectively around Norway at the time. And so there was hundreds of thousands of smart meters running more reliably. So it's a really interesting example in that I think lots of people look at it and say, well, what's green about that? <clears throat> and now you see this technology being deployed in hundreds of millions of smart meters potentially around India and, and making these networks work reliably is, is of course incredibly green. And, and, and now, remarkably, this company's technology has been adopted as a global standard, the first non-cellular 5G global standard. And it's come from a small Finnish company, which is astounding. 
And the reason that's important is because there will, I think, be a future where not hundreds of millions, but, but billions of devices are connected with this type of software, making it a very big business, but actually making it part of the infrastructure on which the world works to deliver information between things to make enable it to be more green. And so technology there, deep technology, becomes very, very impactful and, and I think very sustainable. Interesting. That certainly sounds like one to watch for everyone listening. What stage are they, they now at? They've got a reasonable amount of revenue. They're growing quite fast. They, they, they are actually raising money, but, but they have a huge market to go at. So, and it's, mm, but it's, interesting. It's, just, it's one of those rare examples of rock-solid technology. Well, you know, often we invest in companies, you probably do too, where the technology is good, but, but you're kind of mending it as you're growing the company to some degree. Here, the mm. technology is never yeah. a concern. It's, it's been fantastic. And I've seen you do quite a few software investments on the website and I've had yeah. a look at you know, quite a few of them. What's your view on the hardware side? We, we, we look at both hardware and software. We, we like to focus on digital, be it hardware or software. Software is typically easier to scale, but, but it's sometimes yeah. harder to differentiate. And so I guess if we have a bias towards software, but we also have a big bias towards positive impact. And so there's a kind of interesting tension between the two, but we do have let me give you an example of a hardware company from one of our prior funds. We have a, a Swiss company called Flyability. It's a, an indoor inspection company. So it, it enables people to inspect inside power stations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Use, uh, and it does that by making drones that are collision tolerant. And it's just a remarkable business, which is, we backed when it was a couple of hundred thousand uh, Swiss francs revenue, but it's, it's uh, a hundred times bigger than that today. Of the investment cycle, Patrick, for you personally, I imagine you might have to say all of it, but I was wondering which bit of the investment cycle do you love? You know, is it the talking to the founders? Is it, you know, completing that investment and, and integrating them within the portfolio? What is it really, really you love about venture investing? I used to love the technology and now I kind of like the technology, but what I increasingly love is, is just seeing people achieve things and, and actually if I can play a little part in helping them achieve things, then that, that's very satisfying. So so I, I, it's not so much making investments, which is a bit like spending money, but it's, it's seeing the success come through, particularly sometimes when people have had to battle very hard to do it. And a lot of vicarious pleasure in that. Definitely. It's always nice to see those that have sometimes worked the hardest to achieve that success. You mentioned earlier that impact is obviously, measuring that impact is hugely important. Do you always do that sort of before you make the investment? And obviously, I've spoken to a few other people on the podcast around how difficult it is to measure impact before, you know, for such early stage businesses, a lot of it's quite related to forecasting. So could you talk me through how, how ETF measure impact pre or post investment? Sure. And well, we've gotten simpler over time. Actually, if you go way back, we, we tried to measure carbon equivalents of everything we did. And, and we, we were able to do that, by the way, but we made heroic assumptions. And so the answers were dramatically larger and, and largely nonsense because of the assumptions. And so over time, we've moved to thinking about each, each potential investment and asking ourselves and the, the, the founders or managers where we see the biggest impact and why. And then agreeing on two, maybe three simple metrics that we should be tracking to, to measure that. And we do that out the gate. And then we, we like to incorporate that in regular communication. So we have a very, very simple sense of how the company is doing in terms of its impact 
as well as its financial performance. Now, that means, <clears throat> this is a big subject, by the way, that means each company has a different type of statement. So Zelo, it's actually car journeys avoided, for instance, but that doesn't apply to Riopass, obviously. It's a very different metric. And so what you get for clarity with an individual company, you lose in terms of the ability to aggregate at a portfolio level. And so this, this becomes quite a nuanced conversation. And, and sometimes then people say, well, how do you know at the margin whether your companies have impact? And I think our answer is, is, is actually also quite simple. If it's at the margin, we shouldn't do it. You know, and we need to believe mm. there's, a, there's a real impact. Even if it's not obvious, we need to believe it. And so long as we do and we think we're doing the right thing, then it's, and, and we can measure it, then it feels okay. And that's what we explain to our investors. We also explain, by the way, that this is, this, these impact measurement KPIs are very different to ESG type metrics. And we and others Why is that? don't care about ESG, but it's a very separate subject, I think. Well, because ESG tends to be about compliance with best practice and very internally focused on how things are done within a company, to my mind. And actually, it's reflective more of sophistication and quality of management and management controls. Whereas we're backing young companies trying to make an impact. It's, it's about clarity of purpose and scale of, of potential impact. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I think the whole ESG uh, side is a discussion we can have for another couple of hours, I imagine. But trying to keep it on this road as such, given you've seen so much in this area and, you know, a real wealth of experience there, I'd love to know about what you think the climate tech VC ecosystem is doing well at the moment in and, and not so well. And I could give you a bit more background to that question, but I'm not, I'm not going to, to lead the jury oh, as on. such. So, um, yeah, over to, over to you. Well, I, I, I think there's been through the pandemic, a huge upsurge in interest from investors. There's been some far larger numbers of great entrepreneurs. It's been a booming environment into which a number of new funds have started, which is terrific, right? Um, and so I'm really pleased about that because, yeah. you know, we want to see a difference made in the world. But I'm, I'm nervous about it as well because there's a lot of first-time funds that have been investing through good times and, and you know, arguably times are not going to be quite so easy in the next couple of years. And so I, I worry that people underestimate the scale of risk and potentially un overestimate the amount of follow-on investment capital that is likely to be around. <laughs> but, but clearly none of us can predict the future, me included, right? So the, whilst I worry about this, this is probably mm. a product of my own scar tissue rather than anything else. But I would like to see, I'd like to see the industry continue to thrive. And, and I, think, I think there's room for a lot more collaboration than perhaps there has been in a boom time when everyone's just a bit too busy. Do you mean like in terms of collaboration, just sort of doing deals between funds and sort of, yeah, helping each other source or, or something else? Yeah, we, we like to syndicate deals we, and we mostly do, but we don't always because sometimes it's not easy to find exactly the right investors for, for the sorts of things we want to do. Similarly, you know, in a new community with many new investors, it takes a while for people to figure out who they get on with and to, to get the patterns of communication established. And I think, I think as we potentially enter tougher times, it's worth us all investing a bit more in that. Definitely. I absolutely agree. I was, I was looking around some statistics a few days ago around, you know, comparing clean tech 1.0 versus 2.0 and, and just trying to educate myself really about the, you know, lessons learned. And I found this interesting one, which is done by an MIT energy initiative paper back in 2016, 
was talking about how I think from 2006 to 2011, 25 billion dollars was invested in clean tech startups and over half of that money was lost many of the reasons were yeah investors exactly as you said going into investments which were too high risk and, and not enough reward too longer time high horizons on the sort of technology yeah. r&d so i guess that well, your, your, your worry is that that will repeat no, well i should be clearer i should think a lot more than half of the money was lost back then but 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 actually that the money that wasn't lost, some of it became much more valuable. So there's always a high failure rate in, in venture. But, but I, I think I see people diving into areas that are very risky without clarity of the path to attract capital, perhaps a bit too often. Now, I, I, I'm really keen to see this new way being very successful. I think it matters. And so, yeah. so it slightly worries me if people take on too much risk because we don't want to see any repeats. Uh, we don't want people to say, oh, clean tech's too difficult. Climate tech isn't really, a, or clean tech isn't really a thing. It's multiple different markets, right? Yeah. So so I, I think all those summary conclusions that get bandaged around are, are a bit too superficial. Right? And actually to understand, mm. you can't really understand tech in mobility through looking at tech in smart buildings, right? And you need to understand yeah. each each. Uh, theme, I think, quite carefully on its own. Now, some themes aren't related, so we see huge overlap between mobility and, and uh, the energy transition, and it's hard to fully understand one without the other. But they are, again, separate to building tech, to people doing carbon negative cement companies, or, or what have you. Yeah, that makes sense. But you, you mentioned, I mean, the, the reason I set this podcast up is to try and encourage investment into the areas that should be invested in that's the that's what i feel really passionate about can you illuminate i guess some of the areas that you think vcs should be much more focused on in terms of this these are sort of areas climate vcs and other vcs should be investing in um well we we focus very much on companies with a high digital component because we see the scalability there and we like to see clear metrics of impact so so that covers four or five different themes, actually. And, and, and I think it's important to have a bit of breadth around them. And, and I, I, has, I sort of pull back from saying VC should do stuff. I think that's a slippery slope from, because we, we need to do things we can succeed at. We believe we can yeah. succeed at the things we're focused on. I don't really want to encourage people to feel they ought to do things if, if it's not likely to work out. That's, that sets everybody back. And so... Some industries are very hostile to innovation, some very traditional industries, and much, much harder there, right? It doesn't mean they don't need to change, but it might mean that you have to tread pretty wary with venture capital because you're going to be, you know, people are not going to willingly adopt innovation. So we also try to focus on themes of change where there's a very ready acceptance of innovation. I'm not sure I'm answering your question now. I've drifted off. No, that's all right. It would be good to know what areas are you particularly focused on at ETF? And, and obviously we can read across that, you know, given what you've seen across clean tech cycles, perhaps, you know, other VCs or those up and coming VCs should be, should be more aware of. So we're particularly focused on where the digital world meets the real world. It's software or with hardware. And, and, and the outcome is a, a step change in advance where there's positive environmental impact. And we see that in a number of things. We see it in what you might think of as modern mobility. We see it in the energy transition. But we also see it in, in sort of tech in agriculture, by the way. You know, we see it in, in, in actually tech being applied to green consumerism. 
And so it's it's kind of broader than you think. And, and mm. uh, but but overarching, I, I I think the you know I'd love to see even more great data rich data science type companies looking at the world and how they can influence it. And that that for me is personally is just a very interesting area. That's uh, interesting. We can all keep a lookout on that. Patrick, I'm really interested by your point on collaboration for the industry. Is there anything that, you know, we can do or, or is out there that we, you know, you can illuminate to try and help collaboration between investors and, and other, other people involved in the ecosystem? Are there any events, groups, et cetera, that you'd like to highlight? Probably not, not really, which is why I mentioned it. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've been sitting at home too much through the past few years and, and chatting to people like this yeah. and I think I need to get out and about. <laughs> so, so we're starting <laughs> to travel much more again. And we have been, but, but I, I think it's about really taking time to meet people, uh, Mm. A little bit more face to face, and and by the way, I think our productivity went up because we were all using Zoom and we could just have so many fast meetings. But but you know I mentioned a little while ago about iterative improvement and continuous improvement. I think we've hit the hit the limit on the productivity gains, and we need a bit more emphasis now on human interaction. And so so actually, I think it's just reaching out to people, being prepared to have a a coffee or whatever and, and mm. getting to know people a bit more which we, we certainly will be putting more effort into well that's great i was sort of wanting to turn turn over a bit more to sort of what you're seeing in in europe in the sort of climate tech space and speaking generally europe europe's regulatory environment is probably better than most areas in the world but what are you looking for in the next sort of couple of years perhaps from a policy angle that will that should or may move the dial on climate tech investing Gosh, well, I think the dial has been moved substantially in the past couple of years. But one one thing I'd love to see, but I don't think I will see for a few years, is a carbon tax, a pan-European carbon tax. I think that would be profound um, and make an enormous difference. And so, you know, I think it's worth me mentioning it in hope. Yeah, that, absolutely. That would, that would uh, uh, because I I think we we are drifting towards crisis on, on climate change, and I am, by the way, an optimist. An optimist saying that, and I do believe that technology will provide the answers, but but we're leaving things kind of a bit late. And so, I, I do think we'll see policymakers coming out with plans, suggestions that they would have thought implausible or even fantastic a few years ago within this current decade. You look at the U.S. and the what Biden has pushed through over there, and that was unthinkable a few years ago, right? And so, so I, I think we'll see mm-hmm. Europe doing more again i'm going to answer a different question as well what i slightly worry about which is uh, on the policy front is there is a tendency to try to categorize everything as if as if categorization will be part of the solution so we see a lot of emphasis in europe on defining green on defining what a green fund is you know lots of people ask me whether we're an article eight or article nine fund i think we're article nine if anybody yeah. is but but this is still being worked through what it actually means by the legislators mm. and the, there's yeah. a there's a well-intentioned bureaucracy growing very rapidly in Europe and around, for instance, ESG, which which does trouble me because we are on yeah. the you know, we're trying to back small companies that need to travel very light, and we need to be very focused on keeping things for them as simple as possible. 
Yeah, absolutely. Patrick, you've, you've obviously been involved in lots of startups and, and no doubt sat on the board of many. I was wondering if you could share what you think makes you know a good board member for, for a startup around your sort of stage. Yeah, that, that's also a very big topic, I guess. So I'm, I'm pausing, wondering where to start. It's a good question. I, I think you have to have a genuine interest in the success of the company. You have to be prepared to commit time to it. But, but equally... Being a non-exec, I think is, is you, know, you should you should try to leave your ego out, outside the door when you're coming to the board meetings. Oftentimes, particularly to the group of venture capitalists around, I might say there's a lot of kind of egos in the room. But but the meetings that for me work well are ones where people are well prepared, they've got time, they've got genuine commitment, and they're working collaboratively, right, towards solution rather than winning argument. And so so I think if if yeah. it's that that willingness to collaboratively enter into things. Also around a board, it's easy to get sucked into the bureaucracy of boards and the habit and not really to think each time. So so I, I keep little notes on, on on Trello, actually, of what are my top three or four things that I should be thinking about for each board meeting. It's really simple, right? but at least I, I keep myself focused. I think the focus is key. right? So, so yeah. it, it feels like an unsuccessful board meeting to have contributed nothing at all, but I think often non-execs do that. <laughs> mm. But but there's no point in distracting people on the board. You need to know what what the priorities are before you contribute. Right? So yeah, I, I'm absolutely. probably rambling a little bit, but I think there's a, there's, a, there's an art to be a you know, successful board member. Sometimes you become a judge. Sometimes you're the break person, stopping people accelerating away not thinking about things but sometimes you need to actually encourage people to take more risk and so how you act should be quite situational but anyway i'm at risk mm. of going on too long on this and i could go on much much longer no 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 it's an, in- it's an interesting topic i would just like to know roughly how many boards do you think one investor can sit on it, it, it depends but i think generally in whether it's boards whether it's direct, direct reports whatever there's a kind of rule of seven in my mind that most people can cope with up to about seven and most people struggle beyond that but that's that's kind of an average okay. right and and so yeah I, but I, I think that kind of works fairly well as a rule of thumb you know if you're getting okay. anywhere near that you're probably feeling pretty busy and pretty stretched i can see you yeah thinking. and a bit uh, <laughs> yeah no yeah i think that 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 is i think more than seven is is getting quite quite heavy on the workload definitely if you're doing it you know really thoroughly patrick I have one last major question before we move to the quick fire round, which is pretty short mm-hmm. and sweet. This can be also quite short and sweet. And it's another massive question. So I'm really giving you some big ones here, but perhaps you could give me the, the three key lessons. It doesn't have to be three, but it can be three. Three key lessons that you've learned from setting up a venture capital firm. Yeah, I'm not sure my lessons will apply to everyone, but, but I, I think I did it because I wanted to do it, right? So I guess the drive was you know, in some ways to see if it could be done and to try and leave something behind. And so I, I, I find that more attractive than, hey, this is a good way to make a lot of money. Actually, I, mm. I think that won't, wouldn't sustain me. I don't think it sustains many people through the difficult times. And, and one of the secrets, number two then, is, is resilience, which goes with this being a passion and, and in the best sense, a hobby, right? And, and number three, yeah. it's not about me. <laughs> it's, just, it's about trying to build the the best possible team of people and, and that's enlightened self-interest and so so i think that yeah and that comes from to my mind creating you know recruiting really nice people by the way but also trying to create a very nice and healthy culture i, I tend to think that everybody in venture capital is very smart 
and most people try and differentiate by being smarter than all the other smart guys. It seems to be rather stupid. And so mm. thinking carefully about differentiation, I don't know whether I'm on three or four now, but, but that, that I also think is key. And so we try to differentiate yeah. with our sense of mission and purpose, but also by consciously trying to create a good culture. Yeah. Well, I, everyone I've met from ETF has been a, a very welcoming person who, who does seem really, really passionate about what they do, which is which is always a good testament to the culture oh, you're building you. at ETF. So just moving to the quick fire round now, there's just a couple of questions that, you know, you can give me rapid answers. First one is what's, what emerging or, or existing climate technology really excites you? Could be, you know, direct air capture, could be something like that or something different. Well, actually, that, that is the one that excites me the most, uh, although it's quite hard for us to address in the short term. It excites me the most because I think it's going to be needed within a decade. And if if the cost can be cracked, it's going to be a huge market. It, it scares me almost the most as well for because we're a long way from there. And I don't understand the differentiation at that point. So I'd like to see something which could be sustainably differentiated as well. So that because I do remember when yeah. there was a big solar boom and every venture capitalist was trying to back solar companies when there was no differentiation between them. Right. And that's a tough place to be. Mm. So, so I think direct air capture with differentiation would be number one. Number two, I'm going to add, sneak it in there, is actually measuring stuff using software. And this, this, just as people use software for auditing and accounting, right? And no one thinks that's strange, but but they did 20, 30 years ago. I think it's a bit strange. And we've we've just we've just seen last year the first set of carbon accounting software companies coming through of which the one i would call out is our own portfolio company normative of course and there's just a fabulous urgent opportunity around that yeah i've seen normatives doing very very well so i definitely want to, want to look up for the listeners next one is what do you think the sort of biggest mistake you see that founders make in general i'm not sure there's any one single mistake but but i i, I think the best entrepreneurs i can think of over the past have have been very keen to reduce risk and they work really hard to reduce all unnecessary risk they will take the big residual risk which is the better why they started but but a, a kind of religious focus on reducing unnecessary risk is, is so key and so the 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 most repeat pattern i see is, is the opposite of people just thinking they're in the risk business so they can keep adding and taking more and more risk and in the end one of them gets you mm -hmm. that's a good one and the biggest mistake that investors make? Gosh, again, there's, ma there's many. I've probably made most of them, by the way. But uh, I'm going to say not not knowing people well enough before backing them. Well, Patrick, there you go. that's uh, that's the quick that's the quick far round. That's that's the quick far round done. Just want to say thank you so much for for joining at the Venturing Climate Podcast, and we very much look forward to seeing our ETFs progress over time. Well, thank you, and good luck with the whole podcast series as well. Thank you very much.